thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists on Sunday, November the 21st, and that's with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Sarah Castor-Perry. Now this week, boosting your brain power. Drugs are now available that can increase concentration, improve memory and fight fatigue. And they're increasingly being used by students who are pulling all-nighters before exams, by business people with pitches to perfect and by academics with deadlines to beat. But how safe are these cognitive equivalents of anabolic steroids for the brain? And is it fair or ethical to use them? Will universities ultimately end up screening students for these drugs in the same way that athletes are tested at the Olympics? Well, what do you think? We'd very much like to hear your opinions. Indeed, and we'll also get an update from the 2010 Neuroscience Conference that's been taking place this week in San Diego, and it's included presentations on approaches to overcome blindness by working out exactly how the eye communicates with the brain. The eye does essentially take a picture, but then it goes much further. It processes the picture. It extracts information from it, and then it converts that information into a code that the brain can read. So to make an effective prosthetic device, you've really got to have both these functions. And I think we really have this now. We have these both of these components. If you'd like to get in touch with us through Twitter, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook to get there quickly. Or drop us an email. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. And first up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest breakthroughs from around the world. And taking a look is the order of the day, because this week researchers in America have come up with a clever way to take some of the chance out of one of the common, most commonly carried out surgical procedures worldwide, and that's cataract surgery. About one person in three in the developed world would end up at some point in their life needing cataract surgery, and what it involves is replacing a lens which is in the front of the eye, just behind the cornea, which has become fogged, usually by age, but it's also sometimes triggered by various diseases and also certain drugs that can make this happen. It's a very safe procedure, but unfortunately there is one aspect of it which is a bit tricky and entirely depends on the skill of the surgeon and involves some guesswork on the part of the surgeon too, and that's the part of the operation called capsulorexis. Now what you do when you're doing a cataract procedure is that the ophthalmic surgeon goes into the front of the eye and just behind the cornea is a bag, which is the capsular membrane. And this is what contains the lens that needs to be removed because it's become diseased. And in order to remove that lens, what the surgeon has to do is to make a circular hole of the right size in the front surface of that membrane. This is the capsulorexis procedure. And the way in which it's done, and it's incredibly fiddly, is that you take a needle and make lots of little punctures in the bag in a circular shape and then get the front off of the bag. And you need a circle because the circle has no edges and edges would otherwise concentrate force and that would make a weak spot. It's similar to the reason that aeroplanes have round windows to keep the airframe strong. Now, where you make this capsulorexis, how you make it, how big you make it, is all down to guesswork on the part of the surgeon, and it's therefore the chanciest and therefore the most risky aspect of the procedure. But what a group of researchers at Stanford University, and this is Daniel Palanka and his colleagues, have published in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week, is a new technique involving a laser that does this for you. Now, the, their technique, which they developed initially using pig's eyes, then they tested it on rabbits and then ultimately trialled it on humans, involves making very tiny blasts with a laser, having developed a, a high-profile scan of the front of the eye. And what these laser blasts do is they go straight through the cornea harmlessly and they then cut a perfect, nice, round circle in this capsular membrane, 
just to, just the right shape for what you'd need to get the lens out. And then another further step is that they go inside and they also break up the lens using the laser. And this means the ophthalmic surgeon can go in, just remove the front off of that capsular membrane, use ultrasound to finally break up the lens, but much less invasively than you would have to if you hadn't done it with the laser. You then slip in the prosthesis and the person's cataract has been done. In the trial they did, which involved 50 patients, 30 of whom it was uh, a, a double trial, what I mean by that is, and thankfully not a blind trial actually, what that means is that they did one eye with the standard surgical procedure and the other eye with the new laser technique, they found that the outcomes were equivalently good in both cases. So the laser wasn't doing it any worse than the standard surgical technique. Uh, the cuts that were made were 50 times more precise with the laser. Patients who had the laser technique had much less swelling of the eye after the procedure. And there was a small, it wasn't statistically significant, but there was a small improvement in their visual acuity. So they were seeing better afterwards. So the researchers now say... Time to take this forward and do a much bigger study with more people in order to determine whether or not these laser techniques can make a really valuable contribution to cataract surgery. Myself, I think they, on the basis of this evidence, will. Sarah? That's really interesting. I mean, my, my grandma had that operation, and I think anything that makes a sort of a really commonly used operation like that better is, is only a good thing. Well... I'm sure a lot of us uh, like a nice glass of wine at the end of the day. I don't know about you, Chris, but I, I like a nice glass of wine at the end of the day. Um, but for around 500 million people in the world, that's actually not so much fun as they have an allergy to wine. It's, it's apparently a bit like having a hay fever attack. You get itchy eyes and sneezing. But now a group from the University of Southern Denmark, publishing in the Journal of Proteome Research, have found out exactly what it is in the wine that makes these people react to it. It's a type of molecule called a glycoprotein, which is also what causes other allergic reactions like those to pollen and dust mites. These are molecules made up of sugar and protein molecules joined together, and they are really important to life. They're found in our cell membranes, some important hormones are glycoproteins, and they also play a key role in immune response. The kind of glycoproteins on the outside of an invading pathogen, like a bacterium, for example, help the immune system to identify it. So the team, led by Giuseppe Palmisano, tested an Italian Chardonnay using a mass spectrometer to see if there were glycoproteins present that might be causing these reactions. They identified 28 different glycoproteins in the wine, contributed both by the grapes and by the yeast used to make the wine. Many of the glycoproteins from the grapes were very similar in structure to ones known from other plants and fruit. They're known to cause these allergic reactions, and it's the structure of the glycoprotein that's really important in it being an allergen or not. So are they suggesting that the way forward is to now come up with a hypoallergenic wine that lacks those glycoproteins so that people who do, unfortunately, half a billion of them, that's a lot, have this rather unfortunate allergy could be helped? Well, I, I think that is the kind of the, what they suggested, but obviously it's going to be quite a fair way off because the the glycoproteins in the wine are actually really essential for the sort of the structure and the flavour. So you know, you take those out, the wine's going to be completely different. And also because there's so many of the glycoproteins present, it's kind of they're not sure which one it is. So the, yeah, there's still quite a lot of work to be done. But good news, potentially. I'll raise a glass to that, if I'm allowed to say that. Right, well, also this week, uh, the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience took place in San Diego, California, nice sunny place. This is actually the largest meeting of neuroscientists from around the world who meet to discuss their latest research and the progress they're making in understanding how the brain works. And naked scientist Smita Mundasad was there for all the action, and she's with us now to tell us what she got up to. Hello, Smita. Hi, Chris. So the weather here decidedly worse than California then? Oh, it's so much nicer in California. So shame to be back, but what did you get up to? Well, with over 30,000 neuroscientists in attendance, this year's Society for Neuroscience conference in San Diego was a hotbed of new research and exciting ideas. One of the meeting's highlights was news that researchers have found a way for people to control computer curses with their thoughts alone. So, using MRI machines connected to computers, scientists from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine asked 14 participants to think alternatively of two thoughts. One to think about playing tennis, and the other to imagine going from room to room in a familiar place. Analysing the brain activity from these two different scenarios, the researchers were able to show that the computers could distinguish two distinct patterns of brain activity for each thought. So, while still in the MRI scanner, the participants were asked to use these thoughts to control the movement of a computer cursor on a screen. This means that they had near-instant feedback of how well they could control their own thoughts. 
Lead author Dr Anna Rose Childress explains that this new approach could have major therapeutic implications, for example, in the treatment of addiction. Control of the screen cursor is a really good measure of how well a person can alternate their thoughts between tennis and room by room. The thoughts, of course, are completely arbitrary, but the act of controlling them and shifting them does require considerable attention and cognitive control. For our patients, when they're in the real world and maintaining cognitive control while they're driving their car down the street in a cocaine neighborhood, what they describe is that they will be intruded on by a brief vision of something cocaine-related, and they become derailed. So we're going to be able to model that with this task. We'll have people performing this task and be blipping in very brief cocaine images and be able to actually see the brain struggling to maintain control. So it's a very sensitive probe for disrupted cognitive control in pathological conditions such as addiction, for example. Anna Rose Childress from the University of Pennsylvania. In other news from the conference, again combining the disciplines of computing and neuroscience, researchers have found a novel way to make blind mice see. There's over 25 million people worldwide who suffer from degenerative diseases of the retina, often resulting in partial sight and blindness. Photoreceptors on the retina normally receive light, and then, with the help of retinal ganglion cells, this is converted into electrical impulses that can be understood by the brain. But with many retinal diseases, these photoreceptors stop working. Existing retinal prosthesis offer only very limited hope. Implanting electrodes into the retinal cells can allow people to make out spots of light or edges of objects, but very little in the way of real vision. But now, researchers at Weill Cornell Medical College at New York have taken a new approach. By analysing the light input and then the corresponding neural output of the healthy mice retinal cells, they were actually able to mimic the way the retina converts light into electrical signals. They've actually essentially cracked the neural code used by the brain. This code can then be used to produce a much sharper, clearer image in mouse models. The team hope to work with primates next and then humans very soon. Lead author Sheila Nuremberg explains how her research differs from other approaches. A common analogy is that the patient's eye is like a digital camera with damaged pixels. So, you know, the more pixels you replace, the the better the picture you're going to get. And what our research shows is that there's another factor that's just as critical. Not only do you need to stimulate large numbers of cells, but you also have to stimulate them with the code that the eye is sending to the brain. And this is because the camera analogy really only holds in part. The eye does essentially take a picture, but then it goes much further. It processes the picture. It extracts information from it, and then it converts that information into a code that the brain can read. So to make an effective prosthetic device, you've really got to have both these functions, acquiring the picture and then converting the picture into a code that the the brain can make use of. And I think we really have this now. We have both of these components. Sheila Nirenberg from Weill Cornell Medical College, New York. There was also good news for musicians at the Society for Neuroscience Conference. Benjamin Zendel of the University of Toronto presented research that suggests that musicians may actually be protected from some of the age-related changes in the auditory cortex of the brain. The researchers presented participants with complex sounds under two conditions, one where they were distracted by another activity and the other where they were focused on the sounds. During these experiments, the participants' brain activity was measured using EEG. The brain activity patterns of older people with musical training were very similar to that of young people during the attentive listening task. But older non-musicians showed typical age-related changes. Lead author Benjamin Zendel. A lot of research has shown that musicians do better on many hearing tasks. They have more acute hearing. Uh, They're better at making find distinctions between sounds. And those are the exact same things that change with age. So as you get older, it's harder to make these fine distinctions between sound, and that contributes to difficulty understanding speech in noisy environments, like at a noisy restaurant or a noisy coffee shop. And so the really exciting part of this research is that older musicians seem to maintain some of those abilities, and it's reflected in changes in the auditory cortex, um, that there are changes in the functional components of the auditory cortex in older musicians that make their brains effectively look like that of the younger adults. So those piano lessons might have been a bit more valuable than I thought. That was Benjamin Zandel from the University of Toronto. Smita, thank you very much, and I hope you had a lovely time at the Society of Neuroscience meeting. Thank you, I did. Thank you for joining us. That was Smita 
Mundasad, who is reporting from the highlights of that meeting, which took place in San Diego earlier this week. Sarah. Yeah, well, I'd certainly much rather be in California at the moment, given how cold it's been recently. Well, I've got another really interesting story, and it's all about insects. This week, researchers in Japan have shown that the colour of pea aphids can be changed by a bacteria living inside them. And the reason this is such an interesting story is that colour is a really important aspect of an animal's life. It can influence predators, prey and potential mates as well. The team, led by Tsutomu Tsuchida, studied these pea aphids, which are from France, and are found in both red and green versions in the wild. Red ones tend to get eaten more by ladybirds, but the green ones tend to be attacked by parasitoid wasps. So when the team were looking at the wild populations, they noticed that some of the green aphids were having red offspring, but that the red offspring gradually became green as they aged. They wondered what might be causing the colour change, so they took a closer look at the aphids and they found several different types of endosymbiotic bacteria were living in them. And what are these endosymbionts? What does that term actually mean? OK, so an endo- endosymbiont is an organism that lives inside another organism, but the interaction between them benefits both of the parties. And it has to, really, otherwise it would be considered to be a sort of a parasite or an infection. And one obvious example would be corals. They have a tiny little algae living within their cells that photosynthesize. So the corals gain energy from the symbionts and the algae have ready access to nutrients and safety from predators and things like that. So to find out if the endosymbiotic bacteria and the aphids were involved in the colour changing, the team treated groups of aphids with antibiotics to knock out some of the bacteria. And in a second experiment, they injected uninfected aphids with hemolymph, which is essentially like the blood, from infected aphids. They found that one of the groups of bacteria called Rickettsiella was responsible for the colour change. When the other bacteria were killed off using the antibiotics, the aphid's colour still changed if Rickettsiella was present. And when it was injected into uninfected red aphids, it caused their offspring to become green as they aged. So when the red aphids produced their sex cells, the bacteria hitched a ride in those cells and were then present in the offspring, making them change colour. The group suggested, possibly, that this colour change may protect them from predation by ladybirds. But also, Rickettsiella is usually found with two other symbiont infections that help protect against the parasitoid wasps, so that helps to offset the danger of being green. So it's, it's a really good example of some of the complex relationships that there are between insects and bacteria. These ones actually convey an advantage to them, but there are some quite strange infections like Wolbachia, which can cause sex changes and it can kill off all the males in a brood of insects. And it's estimated to infect something like 70% of all insect species, which is quite amazing. It is amazing. Thank you, Sarah. Well, here's another interesting item, and it's to do with the placenta, because scientists have solved a long-standing mystery which relates to the structure of the placenta, which is, of course, the organ that the baby makes that connects it to its mother as a kind of lifeline during embryonic development. But despite the fact that this placenta, which does the same job for every, every animal that has one, it feeds a baby, it, it's amazing that if you look at different species, you see totally different structures of placenta. So why should this be? Well, for 100 years, no one knew the answer, but now there's a paper that's come out this week in the journal American Naturalist. It's by two researchers at Durham University, Robert Barton and Isabella Capolini, and they think they've got the answer. They looked at 109 different mammalian species, and they studied the size of those animals, the gestation of those animals, and then the placenta size and structure in those animals. And a really interesting trend emerged when they did this, because what they find is that some animals, like humans, have very simple structures to their placenta and very long gestational periods. The baby takes a long time to develop. Whilst other animals, if you take, say, a leopard, for an example, or a mouse, they have very complicated placental structures, what they call labyrinthine placenta. These are very highly folded placenta, which brings the placenta into very close contact with the maternal bloodstream. And those animals, predictably, have a very short gestation. So what they think is going on is that this enhanced complexity of the structure of the placenta means that it's much easier for nutrients to get out of the mother and into the baby, so the baby grows a lot faster in those species. Animals that need to have very big babies, and the babies need to do a lot of developing, though, if they were to grow very rapidly, the mother would be robbed of too many nutrients and resources too quickly, and that could compromise the health of the mother. So from an evolutionary perspective, they're arguing what happens is that the placenta instead becomes less complicated, therefore less effective at robbing nutrients from the mother, and therefore the baby grows more slowly, but in the end still gets 
to be big. So a mystery that's been 100 years in the making, or gestating even, finally been solved. If you'd like to read up a bit more about anything we've covered this week, and also the references, and there'll be transcripts too for all of those news stories, uh, you can find them on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. Now, a visit to any British seaside is never complete with a good poke around in a rock pool. Definitely one of my favourite things to do at the beach. And luckily for them, some scientists get to do that as a day job. I'm very jealous. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson travelled to the Anglesey coastline to meet Stuart Jenkins from the School of Ocean Sciences at Bangor University to see what they could find. Here we are at a medium-sized rock pool. It's about half a square metre in size, about 30 centimetres deep. And first of all, what we can see is that it's literally full of marine life. Hold on, you say literally full of marine life. All I can see is seaweed and... Would this be called seaweed as well? This sort of more frond-like plant? Yes, don't discount the seaweed. We got about, probably about 30 species of seaweed in this rock pool. Good grief. We've got these large canopy-forming algae called Fucus serratus. Growing on the Fucus serratus is lots of brown, slimy ectocarpus. We've got the brightly coloured greens, so we have some uh, Ovalactuca, some Ovalinza. We have these beautiful red algae. This is a, a species of ceramium. So for these, all these um, limpets and grazing snails, the mollusks, for those guys, the seaweed forms the base of the food chain. Also, the seaweed acts like a, a mini forest. So if you imagine you're an amphipod or a prawn or a crab, you want somewhere to hide. So living in amongst that seaweed is a whole diversity of marine life which relies on that for shelter, somewhere to hang out and perhaps to act as an ambush predator. You're interested in particular in the diversity of life that's in a rock pool. Why did you choose a rock pool when you've got, even behind us, we've got an enormous amount of water and then going into the seas and going into the oceans? Man is having a huge impact on our oceans and our coastal waters. And that impact can have a negative effect on our biodiversity. When we lose biodiversity, that's bad in itself. But um, we can ask the question, if we lose species, what effect is that going to have on the functioning of our ecosystems? Now, as a marine ecologist, to try to answer that question, it's very hard working out in the open ocean. I like to do experiments, and I like to manipulate biodiversity. And a rock pool such as this provides an amazing mesocosm, a mini-world, an isolated body of water when the tide goes out, that I can manipulate the diversity and look at how that affects various response variables that I measure, things like productivity and the uptake of nutrients. When you change the diversity of rock pools for seaweed species, what did you find? We found that in the pools with high functional diversity, with seaweed species which were very different from each other, we got greater productivity. And what I mean by productivity is the seaweed grew faster. And if the seaweed grow faster, it provides lots more food for all those animals that live in the pool, the snails, the shrimps and the fish. So we get a much more diverse and healthy ecosystem. Did you do this with any sort of larger life forms? As well as looking at seaweeds, we've also looked at some of the animals that live in these pools. You can see here a number of different grazing mollusks. So we can see the typical limpets that we're all familiar with. We can see things like the common periwinkle, Litterina litteria. Which is a common periwinkle? That's this one, just, ah. just here. But also a whole range of other snails that look similar to that. So the question is, all these snails, these grazing mollusks, look very similar. Does that diversity actually matter? So what we did in rock pools was, again, we we performed an experiment and we manipulated the diversity of those grazing mollusks. Here we looked simply at the ability of the the rock pool to go from a very bare area. We cleared the rock pools first and then for all those seaweeds, those diverse seaweeds, to grow. And what did you find? What we found was that the actual number of species didn't matter. It was certain key species which had a much larger effect on the amount of food eaten than other species. In particular, the limpet that we can see just here. What that says in terms of our biodiversity research is that it's important to understand what species do. 
the number of species is important, but actually the functioning is very important. And that, to me, means that natural history is really, really important in understanding the ecology of this rock pool, or if we look out to sea, the ecology of the wider oceans or any, any uh, marine habitat. Fantastic. There's just so much diversity and science looking looking in even the most modest rock pool. That was Bangor University's Stuart Jenkins dipping into the biodiversity of the rock pool with Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson. Now, there are links to a longer version of that interview as well as the latest Planet Earth podcast at nakedscientist.com forward slash planet earth. Still to come, drugs that can boost brain power. How do they work? Are they safe? And are they ethical? Brain scientist Charlotte Charlotte Halston will be joining us to explain. But first, it's over to Mira and Dave and a tape measure. This week on Naked Engineering, Dave and I have returned to the Structures Lab in the Engineering Department here at the University of Cambridge. But this time, we're looking into shape-changing structures. So, as the name suggests, these are structures that change their shape. But Dave, tell me a bit more about why these are so special. Well, if you're a conventional engineer building something like a bridge or a car or an aircraft carrier, you want to do it out of things which are very, very predictable. So you tend to use big lumps of solid materials which stay in one shape. And you might have joints in between them, but the actual materials themselves are always the same shape. And so what we're looking at today is structures which the whole structure can actually reconfigure itself and change shape. And one person working with these structures is Dr Keith Seffen, who's from the Advanced Structures Group here. Now, Keith, you've got something most people are familiar with in your hand um it's a snap bracelet indeed it is mira as you can see it's got a little bit of plastic covering on it but it's predominantly straight or it is straight in one configuration and if you flick it against your arm it'll wrap around it and adopt a uh, circular shape this has got sort of two configurations one of it where it looks straight if you look carefully at it it's curved in the other direction just very slightly and the second one's when you wrap it around your wrist and it's essentially just a straight coil in one direction That's right, Dave. If you take it apart, if you remove the plastic sheath, it looks like a tape measure. Straight in one configuration, but curved gently across its width, and in the other configuration, wrapped up a bit like a tape measure sitting inside a cassette spool. So, I mean, this is something many of us have seen, but um, how does it actually work? How is it possible for it to have these two configurations? Well, your ordinary tape measure won't have this. It will just want to be straight. What you have to do is manipulate it create or embed if you like the second shape the desire to be curved so you're basically just distorting the metal itself plastically deforming the tape what you can do if you can get hold of a length of tape is to cut a length wrap it into a coil wrap it around a pencil perhaps or your finger and and try and pull it as tightly as possible and what that does is to permanently deform the tape measure into the circular position It likes to be in that shape, but if you then pull it straight, it will prefer to be in that shape as well. And that creates, if you like, this this bi-stable property where it desires to be in both configurations at once. So you've now um, rolled up this tape measure quite tightly around your finger Mm -hmm. and opened it back up. So now with just certain pressures or just pushing on certain points, it should just flick. That's right. If you just take it and push in the middle, as you can see and hear, it sort of pops into the cylindrical configuration or the wraparound configuration and then you have to physically unravel it to create the straight structure again. What you need however is two very different shapes for this to work in. In the case of a tape measure it's long across its length but curved across its width and that changes when you wrap it around your finger, when you wrap it around a pencil. It becomes flat across its width and coiled along its length and it's that antagonism if you like that permits the properties that you see. And the shapes are so different that to physically move from one to the next, you have to come along and break it with your finger or push it in the right place. Can this also be used in other types of materials as well? Sure thing. Um, We have different engineering materials. A popular lightweight structural material is carbon fibre. And we work closely with a company that make tubes from carbon fibre that have the same bistable property. And uh, I've got an example here of one which where we've actually tuned the properties so that it prefers both to be straight and to be coiled at the same time whilst you're holding it. And we call that a neutrally stable structure. So it's not snapping between one to the other, it's just moving very gently. That's right. Uh, In the previous structures, there is a desire to be in both shapes at the same time. They can only occupy one shape at a given time, whereas this one can occupy both. And it occupies both by having part of it straight and part of it coiled and a a kind of funny transition region in between. 
I guess this is a really neat way of storing a very, very long tube. If you want a long tube for something, you can just roll it up the other way and it turns into a short, fat, easily storable object. And in addition, because it's quite happy to be extended to any length, you can have a tube of any length. And for that reason, imagine you wanted to have some kind of device that would enable you to look into buildings at a particular height. So what you can do is extend the tube, have a camera on the top of it, and then look into, say, the window of a burning building if you're a fireman or whatever. But you don't want to be carrying this around in the extended configuration, so you'd roll it up, stick it in your backpack, it would quite happily fit there because it's coiled and neatly packed. Is there anything else we can also use these structures for? Well, what these little demonstrations have shown you is that crucial to the performance of these is is what you start off with as a basic shape. With a snap bracelet, what we thought of doing was taking several of them and linking them together to produce something which was a bit wider rather than having just a single strip, several strips next to one another. Then we had the idea of alternating those strips. And what you end up with then is is something that looks a bit like a corrugated sheet. And like a flick bracelet where we're able to um, give it pre-stress we can make the corrugated sheet, which is nominally flat, coil up into a cylinder. So this is actually a really quite a nice design. Basically, it's a whole series of these tape measures next to each other, but um, one upside down, one the right way up, one upside down, one the right way up. But instead of separate tape measures, it's all just made out of a single sheet of metal, which has just been bent. And this means that because it's actually got some depth, it's actually reasonably rigid as a flat sheet. But if you bend them beyond that point, it just starts to roll up into a tube about two inches in diameter and now it's still quite a solid structure but it's rolled up and takes up much less space but what this demonstrates is a very simple mock-up of an application of our technology where you might want to give some support to a a very flexible thin electronic display there are people out there in the electronics industry trying to make displays as, as thin as possible to give them this nice flexible feature electronic ink electronic newspaper but delicate structures nonetheless so what we're thinking is well put one of our sheets in the back of it give it some strength and stiffness but at the same time not removing that that rollability that foldability if you like of of the display what it's offering and at the same time offering protection to the structure Um, you could basically have a computer screen which was the size of a laptop screen protected because it's got this nice strong back it sits nice and flat but when you click it it will then roll up um, into something about two inches across, you put it in your pocket, but it's still quite protected because it's got this big metal sheet on the back and you can't crease it. And so with applications like this, Keith, so ebook readers and electronic tablets, they're all very popular at the moment. And so in the future, we could just see thinner, um, more portable ones that would store quite neatly into our bags and be protected. I think that's the sort of general aim where the, where the industry might be heading. Uh, the thinner the display, uh, the lighter it is, the less power it uses but the more delicate it becomes. So you need some kind of uh, protective backing on these and one that enables or imparts the, the shape-changing capability that makes it easier to put in your pocket or wherever is, is something that would help. Well, that would certainly make working on the move a lot better if you could roll up your laptop and just put it in your pocket. That was Dr Keith Seffen from the University of Cambridge talking to Mira Senthalingam and Dave Ansell for this week's Naked Engineering. Naked Engineering is produced with the help of an ingenious grant from the Royal Academy of Engineering. And you can see the structures that Keith has been talking about online at nakedscientist.com forward slash engineering. Thank you, Sarah. Well, this week we're looking into brain boosting, also called smart drugs. And joining us to explain what they are and how they work is Cambridge University's Charlotte Housden. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Chris. Hi. Welcome to the programme. What do we actually mean by cognition? in the first place and and sort of cognition boost. What actually is this? Okay, so cognition can be thought of as a basic mental processing function that's essential for everyday behaviour and activity, such as memory or attention. And then these kind of general areas of cognition can actually be divided up even further. So you've got different kinds of memory, working memory, long-term memory. Um, And these are all associated with um, different areas of the brain. And how much do we understand about how the brain actually does those jobs in order to develop drugs that change them? Or are most of these drug interventions done blindly in terms of we find something that works, so we use it? It's a mixture of those approaches, actually. So um, sometimes you have a drug and then we find it works with a certain patient group. And that can tell you something about how the drug, how it's working, and that can um, open up doors on on further potential treatments. Um, And that's the more usual approach. Or we can have a good idea on what's going on with a certain patient group and then go looking for drugs that would help them. 
And where are we with this at the moment? When we're saying we have drugs and we, we know people on campuses, in laboratories, in business board meetings are using these things because people have done studies in, published in pretty powerful journals mm-hmm. with people are, are blindly and anonymously saying, yes, I'm, I'm using these things. What's the scale of the use, though, do you think? Um, it's um, quite hard to say, but just as an indication, um, the use um, of these drugs by healthy people, so the Cambridge University student newspaper did a survey last year and they interviewed a 1,000 students and they found that actually 10% of students admitted to using a drug to help them with their studies. And the reasons they gave were to improve concentration and also um, to enable them to have a work-life balance. <laughs> I'd quite like that. But what are we classing as a drug? I mean, would they be answering, I'm on a drug, if they said, I had 15 cups of very strong coffee a day? Well, the people who answered the survey um, in this particular case were just talking about actual um, actual drugs. But it's interesting you brought up caffeine because um, actually caffeine is um, a mild stimulant and is something that lots of people use to improve their cognitive ability. And it has been shown to improve memory and attention in people who are sleep deprived. So it's kind of a wake promoting drug that, that lots of people turn to. Although, as one person put it to me, you're never quite clear whether it's just people getting relief from the side effects of caffeine deprivation, making them feel so much better that their performance improves, which I think is probably the case with me, compared with it actually having some kind of tangible improvement on what your baseline would be. I mean, people have presumably done that, have they? Taken people who are are not caffeine users and then put them on it and seen a demonstrable improvement. Yes, yes. So there have been double-blind studies with drugs such as caffeine, particularly in sleep-deprived people, it seems to have an effect. So it seems that caffeine's cognitive-enhancing effects seems to, um, are related to its wake-promoting properties. So caffeine will probably work best when you're feeling a bit tired, but actually if you're in kind of performing quite well, the effects might not be quite as big as if you were sleep-deprived. Well, caffeine, that's common, and mm-hmm. lots of people use that quite legally. I'm one of them. What about the other things that people use illicitly, though? What sorts of drugs fit into that category that boost boost brain power? Well, there are other drugs which have originally been developed for use in patient populations. So from my point of view, I'm interested in, in investigating how drugs such as this can be used to help patients with cognitive impairments. These drugs are being used by other people and um, they, they include drugs such as modafinil, which is known as Provigil, which um, has been shown to improve cognition in healthy people. And again, it's, it was originally developed for use in patients with narcolepsy. So again, it has weight-promoting properties and it's also recently been licensed for use in shift-work sleep disorder, so for people who aren't performing well because they're tired. So when you're taking these agents the research you do presumably what you do is to put people into a brain scanner and put them either on the agent or on a placebo and give them a trial to do some kind of cognitive workout in order to compare how the brain is performing under those conditions what does it do to the nervous system when you take these agents in what way is it achieving these beneficial effects i know you've said it obviously wakes people up a bit but Mm. is there something else beyond that okay so um if I use modafinil as an example, so we've done cognitive tests with modafinil and in um, Cambridge, and we found that modafinil in healthy people in Cambridge, healthy young adults with high intelligence, um, actually showed improvements on working memory and also response inhibition. So that's the ability to stop yourself automatically responding to an inappropriate stimuli, which is actually quite a useful cognitive skill. Modafinil- so people become less distractible. Yes, in a way, or less impulsive, less impulsive. Modafinil um, seems to work through a few different neurotransmitter systems. It doesn't just focus on one system. So something which lots of people might have heard of is dopamine. It seems to bind very weakly to dopamine transporters. So that kind of increases throughout the brain it increases dopamine in a kind of tonic way rather than dopamine firing. It's kind of a diffuse increase in dopamine and it also seems to um, affect neurogenylene glutamate systems. And the way that modafinil actually makes people more alert is it, it helps more sensory information get to the prefrontal cortex which happens when you're feeling quite awake. And um, the prefrontal cortex is an area of the brain that's really important for high-level cognition. So we call them executive functions. So these are things such as thinking flexibly, planning and problem-solving, things that are kind of quite high-level. But the thing that strikes me is that if you take this agent and you get these effects, if they were beneficial, why wouldn't your brain already have those pathways and those levels of neurotransmitters normally? Why... 
should it be beneficial to enhance them in this way if it were good for you in the long run? Okay, so that's um, so. Actually, we all have different levels of neurotransmitters in our brains. So everybody has different levels, and um, the different levels actually advantageous for different things. And actually, these drugs do work differently in different people. And that's something very important to keep in mind. Some a drug that might enhance cognition in somebody may actually um, impair cognition in somebody else. So I talked about the prefrontal cortex being really important, and actually, dopamine in the prefrontal. For- cortex you want to kind of have an intermediate level of dopamine there for you to be functioning at your best and some people have naturally lower level of dopamine than others so if they took a drug that improved dopamine then the functions associated with the prefrontal cortex get better such as working memory however if you naturally have quite high levels of dopamine so you're a high functioning person your memory is quite good then actually taking a drug like modafinil would actually make you um, perform worse on a working memory task so well, might think you're performing better, presumably, to, to some students who take this stuff and it makes them wake up because of the action on other neurotransmitters, suffer a benefit in one regard but a disbenefit in the other. It could it could potentially work like that. So you may actually, because you it works, as I said, modafinil works on a few different systems, you could be seeing benefits in some areas and not others. And actually the amount of the drug that people take also influences that. So um, say, for instance, another drug, methylphenidate, which um, acts on dopamine systems, um, when people with ADHD take this drug, their um, attentional levels go up as the dose increases, but actually at high levels that people become more impulsive. So you've got to balance it out with the dose, and it also depends on your, your individual genetic makeup as well. What about the long-term effects, Charlotte? Presumably we haven't been using these agents for long enough to know a lifetime's use of this in the workplace. What will that do to my brain eventually? Will I end up rotting out my brain whereby I have to take this stuff just to function normally? Yeah, so that's um, an interesting concept. So it's quite difficult to know at the moment because it, it, we found it quite hard to get ethical approval to do studies in healthy people for long-term use just because if it is detrimental, then it's not very good to do that to people in your studies. All of the drugs that people are, are using off-label off have been licensed for use and safe use in patient populations, so that's one thing. There is a problem um, with long-term use of drugs that are bought on the internet because actually there's no guarantee that they're safe and actually most internet sites will give you the drugs without a doctor's prescription. And that's where the students are getting them from, is it? There is different um, research saying different things. So yes, lots of people do get them off the internet and you don't need a doctor's prescription for that, which is quite worrying because you don't actually know what you're buying. And there's also a problem with people selling drugs prescribed to them to others, so people obtaining drugs that have given to relatives or friends for their own cognitive impairments. Sounds worrying, doesn't it? It (laughs) Charlotte's going to be with us for the rest of the programme. She's here to talk about how these drugs that are available, that people can obtain affect the way in which the brain works and alter cognition and therefore learning memory, how awake you feel and whether or not you can pull an all-nighter to pass your exams. If you have any questions for her, do get in touch. We've heard from the guys in Second Life. Hello to all of you. CB Axel says, I find actually taking too much caffeine actually makes me learn less because I can't concentrate on what I'm learning. So that would go along with the distractibility we were talking about because I know I get quite jittery and distractible when I have too much caffeine. But do get in touch. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at... At Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. We're talking about drugs that enhance brain function this week, and in particular the so-called smart drugs that could give us an intellectual edge. The fact that we might be able to give ourselves a boost like this raises some interesting ethical questions, one that we're likely to need to address more and more as our understanding of the human body increases. Professor Julian Savalescu is the director of the Oxford UA Hero Centre for Practical Ethics, and he joins us now. Hi, Julian. Hello. So, I mean, I guess if we're talking about the ethical issues of using drugs like this, first of all, how, how do we define what is the normal state, the normal cognitive state, the normal intellect? Yeah, no, normality has been de- defined statistically um, for these purposes as um, uh, anyone who is more than two standard deviations below the mean. So for, for IQ, we have a normal distribution curve and, and um, two standard deviations means that roughly 2% of people um, have what's defined as an intellectual disability. 
So if your IQ is below 70, you're said to have uh, an intellectual disability. Above 70, you're normal. Um, but this is a purely arbitrary line that we've drawn um, in order to devote resources for medical research, decide who gets medical treatment. So in the previous segment, whether you're uh, entitled to get a modafinil as a medical treatment will just depend on how sleepy you happen to be uh, and, and whether this is defined arbitrarily as a disease. And so how, how does this issue inform neuroethics? I mean, w- what is the field of neuroethics? Well, neuroethics is, the, is, first of all, the study of the ethical implications of advances in neuroscience and also the, the neuroscience of, of ethical judgments and moral judgments, looking at what happens uh, in the brain when people make moral judgments. But in, with respect to, to this issue, there's, there's several, I think, important insights that ethics can offer. The first one is that, that the distinctions that we have can have very profound significance um, for ordinary life. I think the most striking that I've come across in the last few months, it was in September, a woman in the US called, I think her name was Teresa Lewis, was executed in Virginia for for, uh, committing murder. Now, Virginia has a law that says if you're intellectually disabled, you can't be executed, you can only be given life imprisonment. Her IQ was 72. Um, If it had been 69, she would have lived. Now, three points of of IQ difference at that level have no functional significance. In fact, if she'd been on modafinil when she took the IQ test, she might have just crept up from 69 to 72 uh, on the test. So where we draw these lines has profound legal significance. Um, It also has profound ethical significance because it means that people who have an IQ above 70 won't be eligible for the use of cognitive enhancers for treatment of intellectual disability. Nonetheless, people in the, in the band between 70 and, and 90 or 70 and 100 face enormous obstacles in everyday life. You need an IQ of 90 to complete a tax return in the US. That means over 20% of normal people in the US lack, an, lack the IQ necessary to complete their tax return. So when you look at the ethical consequences of, of the sorts of scientific distinctions that we make and the, the science that we're um, generating, they have profound impacts on people's lives. And so then what are the ethical issues if we're talking about enhancing cognition and using drugs like modafinil and things? If we're talking about people using this illicitly, what, what are the kind of ethical issues there? Well, the, the argument I often hear when it comes up with students taking um, modafinil and other cognitive enhancers isn't this cheating. And I think in, in, in one sense, it is cheating if some people have access to, to the drugs and other people don't. Um, but the far more important issue is, is how safe are these and what are the risks and benefits? And, and that's not the issue that we tend to look at. We tend to, to say, well, these are enha- this is enhancing normal function. Uh, human beings shouldn't be enhancing. It's unnatural to enhance normal function. Um, and so what we try to do is get people to scratch a little bit deeper and see what, what the actual risks and benefits are. When it comes to people at the low end, the, the benefits are enormous, as I said. And even at the top end, um, if you look at people in the top 1% um, of the band of IQ, that is the very top centile, and divide those into the, the lowest quarter of that 1% and the top one quarter, um, people in the top one quarter of the top 1% produce about seven times as many patents as the average person, and people in the bottom quartile of that top 1% produce about three times as many patents. So even if you increase the performance of people in the very top uh, 1%, you'll still have significant um, social advances in terms of inventions and patentable inventions. If you shift the whole IQ curve three points to the right, that is 3%, people have estimated that you'd add 1.5% to the GDP of the US, $150 billion to the economy and re- reduce welfare recipiency by 20%. So at a social level, um, this isn't a, just a, an issue of boffins you know, performing better on their exams. It's an issue of vital social and, and economic justice issues. So do you think that universities should be dope testing for this sort of thing? Or, or do you think that it, it could be a, a benefit to the GDP of society, I suppose, like you said? Well, I think it's premature to say that, and I think the really unethical issue in the whole of the discussion so far is that it's virtually impossible to do proper long-term large-scale studies of normal people using cognitive enhancers because we have this treatment enhancement distinction. 
So in the research that um, I think was mentioned, as far as I know, uh, they can only administer one or two pills to, to normal people. Uh, they can't administer, they can't even study people who are taking this illicitly um, every day of the week um, because that would involve um, giving people drugs that are enhancements. And this very anti-enhancement culture that, that we have is hindering proper scientific research. So we just don't know what the long-term uh, effects of, or the adverse effects of large numbers of normal people taking um, cognitive enhancers. We need that information. And if they are as safe as caffeine, it may well be a time when we view taking modafinil in the same way as we, we take drinking coffee. Uh, in fact, it, there's no reason in principle why it couldn't be a better cognitive enhancer than caffeine. Well, there you go. It's quite an uncertain future there. That was Professor Julian Savalesco. He's the director of the Oxford Uehiro Centre for Practical Ethics. If you've got any questions or comments for Julian or for us, then do get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientist, write on our Facebook wall or send an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Sarah. Right, well, it is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. We're talking this week about ways to pep up your brain power using various drugs, both licit and illicit. And we also have with us Smita Mundasad, who was at the Neuroscience Conference in San Diego this week, but she's also a medical doctor and knows a lot about how the brain works. So I thought I'd throw a couple of these her way too. Let's kick off, though, first with one for you, Charlotte, which is that uh, Sean Hoskins has written on our Facebook page, if cognition-enhancing drugs are taken to help with exams, what actually happens when the exams are over? Does the body or brain go back to normal? Does this newfound ability remain with the drug abuser, or worse... Do things get worse because the body's now looking for some kind of crutch? Okay, so the way I'm interpreting this is um, a crutch has been the potential for these things to be addictive in some way or um, somebody becoming dependent on them. There is a concern that people might feel psychologically dependent on drugs because they don't they lose confidence in themselves and they feel they need something extra in order to go on doing well. And then furthermore, with modafinil, an imaging study has actually shown that modafinil binds weakly to dopamine transporters in an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. Um, and other drugs which bind to this area have actually been shown to be addictive. Um, but because it binds weakly, it's thought that the addictive potential is quite low, so um, people won't get addictive. But it is still um, something which could be a risk factor and could affect some people. And in terms of long-term use, so if you're using these drugs to help with exams, what happens afterwards? And as, as we've already discussed, we haven't had the opportunity yet to look at long-term use in healthy individuals. But it is, it is a possibility that if somebody was taking a lot of some of these drugs over a long period of time, there might be some changes neurologically, but it's very difficult to say how this would transfer to, to behaviour. Thank you, Charlotte. So there's everything to play for, I guess. We'll have to wait and see. Smita, here's one which came in from Second Life. Archivist Llewellyn says, is it true there's evidence that avatars have been controlled in things like Second Life, where he's listening, um, using brainwaves? Yeah, from the neuroscience conference I went to uh, just this week, I think there's been a lot of success actually working that way with brain-machine interfaces, and that's sort of translating brainwave activity into a digital form so you can then actually control machines using your brainwave activity. So it wouldn't surprise me if people have been working on that kind of issue. I've got another one, uh, which is Science Copperfield says, is it possible to download information directly from the brain? And then he sort of twists that round and says, also, could we write information into the brain as well, um, like you do with a USB stick? I think that one's a little bit more difficult. Um, I think that brings up a lot of issues. I mean, who controls what you can download? Would you be able to download something from someone else's brain? I think we're a little bit far away there, but there's a lot of progress with neuroscience, so I, it wouldn't surprise me if it happened. Smita, thank you very much. Smita Mundasad, who was at the Society for Neuroscience Conference in San Diego this week. Uh, just time for probably one or two more. Uh, Charlotte, um, Alan Scott says, is it true that drugs like Adderall, now that's a kind of amphetamine, isn't it, and Provigil, which is one we talked about, Modafinil, they don't leave you with a sleep deficit? Because usually when you accrue a sleep deficit by not going to bed when you should, you then have to pay that back later. Do these drugs leave you not having to pay back the sleep you haven't had? 
Okay, what these drugs seem to do is they seem to um, counteract the effects of excessive daytime sleepiness. So when you're feeling sleepy during the day, what they do is they allow more stimulation of the prefrontal cortex, making you feel more awake. However, sleep has been shown to be essential for things, for processes such as memory reconsolidation. So that's learning things and processing the things that you've encountered during the day. So although you may not feel as sleepy um, when you take stimulants such as um, Adderall and Provigil actually you probably should try and catch up on your sleep that's not the answer you shouldn't stay awake all the time and just take drugs. Charlotte thank you the parent with two children I know exactly what you mean. Uh, Richard Colley got in touch as did Phil Reynolds and they were wondering about St John's wort and whether there's actually any evidence for it. Um, I can quote meta-analyses of randomised controlled trials of St John's wort for major depression suggest that it is superior to placebo and it's similarly effective compared with conventional antidepressant drugs and tends to have fewer side effects St John's Wort being a way of actually making your mood elevate. So it's a sort of natural antidepressant. Although they do say uh, in placebo-controlled trials, trials from German-speaking countries tend to report more favourable findings. So I guess the jury is out on that one. Sarah? Interesting stuff. Well, now it is time to join Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. This week, what happened to the hungry caterpillar? Hello, this is Silva from Vienna in Austria. I was wondering what exactly happens when a caterpillar pupates and then turns into a butterfly. Does it liquefy into some sort of protein sludge and start from scratch, or does it just grow wings? Thank you, bye. It takes a few weeks in the spring for a caterpillar to undergo this process, so what happens? Okay, so I'm Chris Jiggins from the Department of Zoology in Cambridge. Well, obviously, an insect like a butterfly has two different life stages which have very different ecologies and very different requirements. So when you go from a caterpillar to a butterfly, you require a lot of different structures. So in the pupa, some of the caterpillar structures are carried through into the adult and some of the adult structures are completely developed from scratch almost in the pupa. So the wings, for example, obviously are unique to the adult and actually they're present in the caterpillar as little blobs of tissue called imaginal discs. And you can, if you know where to look, you can squeeze out a little blob of tissue from the caterpillar, which is going to turn into the adult wing. So in the pupa, some of those structures, which are just little blobs of tissue, will grow into the wings. And others are developed from the structures already in the caterpillar. So, for example, the legs and the antennae, the adult legs grow from a little piece of tissue at the base of the caterpillar legs and the adult antennae in a similar way. Other structures like the central nervous system is largely maintained from the larva through to the adult, but all the connections are reconnected. So obviously there are things like wing muscles, which aren't present in the caterpillar, which need to be connected up in in the adult. There are structures like the Malpighian tubules, which are to do with excretion, which are carried through from the larva into the adult. So um, like most of biology, I suppose it's somewhere in between being a complete sludge in the pupa and just producing wings, it's actually a mix of some structures being retained and some being developed. But are any bits of the caterpillar discarded? So the structures that aren't required are basically broken down and the the proteins reused in producing the adult structures. So there are obviously um, muscles associated with the legs which are completely reconstituted in the adult. So yeah, the protein sludge is not a bad analogy for some parts of what goes on, actually. Virtually nothing is wasted by the caterpillar, as some parts of it are retained, and others do indeed become a proteiny mush. And did you know that some chrysalides are able to make noises from inside their hard shell in order to scare off predators? Next week, what happens when the universe finishes pupating? Hello, this is uh, Father Jerry Drummond. I know that the universe is expanding at an ever-increasing rate, and eventually that will approach the speed of light. So what's going to happen then? Will it go faster than the speed of light? Presumably that's not possible. Will it stop? Will it start reversing and go back to a big crunk? Thanks very much. What do you think will happen as the universe expands? Public answers to us at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum, or you can email privately chris at thenakedscientists.com. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. So if you want to give us your insights on the expansion of the universe, do drop us a line, chris at thenakedscientist.com. That is all we have time for this week. Next week, it's a question and answer extravaganza. We'll be tackling your science questions for you. So do send them in, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Let me right now say a very big thank you to our guests this week, uh, Charlotte Housden and Julian Savalescu, and also Smita Mundasad, who joined us to tell us about what went on at the Society for Neuroscience meeting in San Diego. Thank you to our production team this week, who were Tom Simpkins, Mira Senthaling, 
Cunningham, Dave Ansel, Ben Valsner and Diana O'Carroll. In the meantime, have a very nice week and see you next time. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.